Welcome to Poets and Writers. This is Henry McCarthy coming to you from the beautiful Emory and Henry College campus, WEHC 90.7. We have a great show for you today. We're on the road. I'm at another fine institution of academic learning and higher learning, and that's Wake Forest University, and I have a really special person on today, Gail Siegel. Gail, how are you? I'm great. All right, as we like to ask around the mountain, Gail, where are you from? I'm from the Bronx, New York. Oh, we've heard of it. Well, yeah. Yeah. Can so, you tell from my accent? Absolutely. <laughs> so you grew up in the Bronx, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. Well, how did you come to, and get, make a long story short, how did, we, how did you wind up here at Wake Forest? Well, um, I went to, did all my schooling in New York, and when I went out on the job market, I had a number of offers, and the one from Wake Forest was by far the best offer. And so I left my home uh, and was ne- had never lived anywhere else, and I came down here, and I actually love it down here. And you've been here how long? 31 years. 31 years here on the Wake Forest campus. And listeners out there, uh, this is WEHC 90.7, Poets and Writers, and we're going to talk about medieval poetry. Oh, now, don't turn the dial. Medieval poetry. We're going to talk about Chaucer and Canterbury Tales and how it relates to your life. Correct, Gail? Correct. All right. Talk a little bit about what you teach here at Wake Forest. So I teach the Canterbury Tales. Um, sometimes I teach some other works of Chaucer, but the Canterbury Tales is a very surprising work because it's very modern <laughs> and it's very relevant Chaucer makes up a story of a bunch of pilgrims going on a pilgrimage to Canterbury um, to visit the shrine of St. Thomas. And along the way, they have to tell stories. They have a storytelling contest. And they are competing to win a free dinner when they get back to London, where they're leaving from on their way to Canterbury. So they're going to tell four stories, two going and two coming back. And there are 30 of them. That's 120 stories. Only Chaucer didn't finish it. He only wrote 22. (laughs) And of the 22, there's some fantastic, wonderful, magical stories. And there are some disturbing stories. So the characters that are on the pilgrimage are described in what Chaucer called the general prologue, in which he takes each character who is going on the pilgrimage and describes them in great detail. And he has some amazing lifelike characters who you never forget once you read about them. And in fact, you can see people like that around you every day. Um, So there's the widow who's looking for her next husband. (laughs) There's the monk who likes to hunt rather than pray. Uh, There's a partner. We don't have them anymore, (laughs) but they give... Uh, he gives out pardons, but he gives out fake ones. So he's actually fooling the people, and he's a little bit of a rascal. And all these people turn out to be sinners because you go on a pilgrimage to get rid of your sin, and if you don't have any, you don't need to go on a pilgrimage. But in the Middle Ages, everybody had sin. Everybody was sinful, and they would go to Canterbury to be healed if they were sick, or to ask for it to atone for their various uh, sins, and so along the way on the journey, a lot of them are sinning, <laughs> and so we hear the stories 
and we also hear the pilgrims' reactions to the stories. And that becomes the first example of literary criticism in English literature. Well, the Canterbury Tales, that takes us way back. What period was that in? Okay, so we're talking about the 14th century. Okay. So we call that the late Middle Ages. It's on the cusp of the Renaissance. So in Italy, it's already the Renaissance, but England is slow. So their Renaissance didn't come for another century. But Chaucer was really a Renaissance man. Oh, I like that term, Renaissance man. Mm-hmm. And a, a lady called me that one time, and it, <laughs> my wife said she was mistaken, but that's another story. <laughs> uh, what, is, what is a Renaissance man? Well, Chaucer was a diplomat. He was also a tax collector. He worked for three different kings, each of whom deposed the one before, and he managed to keep his job. So he was very good with people, and he he had jobs. He wasn't just a poet or an author. He had real jobs where he got to meet a lot of interesting people. So collecting taxes for for the wool trade which was the most lucrative trade in England at the time, he met a lot of characters. He met a lot of sinners. Well, he was, you know, back then you didn't talk about the middle class. You just talked about the aristocracy. So he wasn't an aristocrat, was he? He was, uh, he ended up rising through the, what we would call today the upper middle class. But what's happening in Chaucer's time and what he reflects in his work is the breakdown of feudalism and the rise of professions. So it's the very, very beginning of the rise of the middle class. But they don't call it the middle class. It's just that the need for certain aspects of feudalism was deteriorating. And instead, you had a buildup of cities and towns where new jobs were required, new kinds of um, professions were open to people. Okay, now with Chaucer, this is one of the early books, right? We talk about publication. How was this printed, for example? That's I know this is kind of a petty question. No, but... not at all. It's a very good question. Chaucer never left us anything in his own handwriting, um, and but he did have a scribe. And there were no books yet, because this is before the invention of the printing press. The printing press really is one way of looking at the looking at the Renaissance, of, uh, the beginning of the Renaissance is sometimes attributed to the printing press. Mm-hmm. So before the printing press, we had manuscripts, handwritten manuscripts, often illuminated by artists, but most of them were monks living in monasteries, and they would be writing down or copying from another manuscript. Correct. So Chaucer's had a lot of, he, he ended up having a lot of manuscripts of his work, and that's why we know he was very popular, because other works have like one or two, and we're just lucky to have any manuscripts. With Chaucer, we've got a lot of manuscripts. Well, Gail Siegel, uh, on Poets and Writers today, who were his readers, and who read Chaucer at that time? He had listeners, so he would read, he or a performer would read his stories aloud, and he would have an audience, could be a courtly audience, that was listening to the stories. And maybe there were some people in the audience who were trying to write them down, but he never wrote them down himself. So we don't have anything that's written by him. And in fact, at at the end of the Canterbury Tales, the very last part, 
is something he called the retraction, where he took back all of his most famous works and he apologized for writing them because he felt they were very full of sin, which they were because these were sinners going to Canterbury. So he, he took it back, but how do you take back something that you never wrote down to begin with? So he would tell these stories and mm -hmm. someone would write them down. Yes. Well, uh, as a friend of mine who's a, a writing teacher, creative writing teacher said, writing is talking on paper. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, we talk those things on the paper. Yes. Well, Milton yeah. himself, John Milton, who wrote Paradise Lost, he was blind and he recited the entire Paradise Lost to his wife and daughter who wrote it down. He had it all in his head. That is so fascinating. Wow, we're learning a lot here today on Poets and Writers. Now, I want to go back and talk about the Canterbury Tales a little more. Now, those characters, talk a little bit about the ones you like and that really stand out and something we can learn from all of them, of course, but something we can learn from those characters. Good. So we have a very famous character called the Wife of Bath, and she's a very loud bold woman, and there's nobody like her in English literature before The Wife of Bath. One of the things Chaucer was doing was using real ordinary people, not writing about aristocrats, not writing romance novels, but writing about the opinions of real, of ordinary people, of working people. And so The Wife of Bath is a widow. She's been married five times, and she is also a cloth maker. And so when Chaucer describes her, he describes what she's wearing. She's wearing 10 pounds of cotton on her head. She has a big, huge hat, and it's her own cotton. So she's not only a great uh, wife, she's sometimes called the archwife, but she's also a great cloth maker at the cutting edge of what was a new industry in England, which was cloth making, because England would have was the biggest industry in England was the wool industry, but they used to ship, export the wool to, Fl to Flanders, and then the Flanders would make it into cloth, and then the British would buy it back. But the wife of Bath had, an, uh, had a different idea. She decided to take the wool and make it into cloth herself. And she was an expert cloth maker. So she was very good at having a profession and actually making money, but she also inherited from her first three husbands, a lot of wealth. So her story, she tells her life story in the prologue, in her own prologue, and then she tells a fairy tale story as her tale, and it's so good that it's probably going to be in contention to be one of the winners. And it's an Arthurian romance that she tells. And in it, all the heroes are women, and all the villains are men. <laughs> and she was very, uh, she espoused very what we would call today feminist views. Um, and she often, um, she often made the views seem very logical. And so Chaucer allows this woman to convey some very, very radical ideas. Interesting. We don't say that Chaucer believed them. We don't know if he believed them, but he put it out there. She talked about the double standard, uh, the gender double standard. She talked about how she loved being married and how she loved manipulating her husbands. Oh, really? <laughs> Especially the first three. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, that was interesting. And then you had some connivers, so to speak. Yes. Uh, uh, yes. Who who were some of those on this? Uh, how many people were on this tour? Thirty and, altogether. Thirty altogether, including the narrator. Okay. And the narrator's name was Jeffrey Chaucer. Yes. And Jeffrey Chaucer is the only pilgrim who tells two tales, and they're never going to win the contest. <laughs> so, so his first tale is so awful that the pilgrims interrupt him, and they say, "Stop! Stop! We can't stand this tale." So then he tells another tale, and it's a tale in prose of prudence, and it's very, most people think it's very boring. So he's kind of making fun of his, his own his own, his own narrator. Right. Um, but another character who's really fascinating is the partner who sells fake relics. The, uh, the, the partner. So they pardon people. Yeah, he they... had pardons. He had carried pardons from, from Rome, supposedly. And he also had St. Parts of saints' bodies that he called relics. But when he pardons, were you going to give some examples of what he pardoned people? He pardons for? people. It's it's easy. It's very easy. They just pay him, and he gives him, and he gives them a pardon. So it's an easy way, which is not good religiously, but it's an easy way for oh, rich people to get pardoned. Okay. And he's corrupt. So right. he's not just giving out real pardons. He's also giving out fake pardons yes. and fake relics. He picks up mm -hmm. pieces of stones from the ground, and he says, this is a finger from St. So-and-so. Well, and so he brags in the beginning in his prologue, he brags about how he fools people because the only thing he's interested in is acquiring money. He says his motto is, avarice is the root of all evil. And yet he is the biggest, <laughs> he is the, the greediest person on the pilgrimage. And he's collecting everybody's money. And he tells a tale about how he gets, how he gets the money from people by telling a really great story that is also going to be one of the contenders to win the contest. Even though he himself is very sinful, he tells a great tale. He's sure. a great storyteller. Great storyteller. And, he, and so he, mm -hmm. he scares people into giving up their money, and he collects it all. And the point, one of the points is that he's collecting everybody's sins because the money is the root of all evil, uh, liturgically. And therefore, when he collects the money, he is collecting sins. Even though he doesn't care about the sin, he doesn't mm -hmm. really believe in it, he's taking in the money, but the sure. people who give him the money are actually getting rid of sins. Well, sure. So he helps save people, <laughs> even though he doesn't mean to. And he's probably going straight to hell. Right, and then they can go commit more sins well, and get more pardons. Sure, right? yeah. they can. They, well, you know, he's doing God's work despite himself. Well, now a major influence at that time, and we're talking with uh, Gail Siegel here today on Poets and Writers, and just having a wonderful time. We're, I'm here on the Wake Forest campus, and she's an outstanding professor of medieval literature and. And on and on and on. So she's educating me on Jeffrey Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales. Honestly, Gail, I had it in college, but you're making it so much more interesting. I <laughs> need to come back and take your class. But so talk a little bit. Uh, uh, now, the Catholic Church, the religious influence during this time, can you talk a little bit? Because you mentioned the partner. And I know there's some priests yes. uh, in this. Uh -huh. And uh, then there's some knights. Now, the knights are the good guys, right? Mm -hmm. or, oh. There's a knight and, a and, and his son, the squire. And the knight tells the first story, and he's an outstanding knight, which means he's also killed a lot of people. 
because he was fighting on crusades and he was fighting in wars for his whoever his lords were. But he's also a very pious man. And so he comes on the pilgrimage all stained from having been on a having been on a uh, on a on a crusade and he wants to immediately go to Canterbury to get absolved from the killing that he's just done. And he's an outstanding character and his son is also an outstanding character but he's very different from his father because he represents what's happening to knighthood at this time which is that it's dissolving and it's only becoming it's only becoming uh, something for rich people uh-huh. it's because it's very expensive to be a knight it's becoming very expensive because and this would be about what the 1400s did you say or about... Chaucer died in 1400 okay. so we're talking about the 1380s or so and what's happening is knighthood is 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 being broken up because it's the beginning of armies so knights mm-hmm. aren't needed so much anymore for the fighting and they're becoming just kind of upper class types who spend all their time having a good time playing jousting and playing music and courting ladies yeah well you know but growing up we all associated many of us with being a knight we wanted to be a knight you know mm-hmm. and we'd grow up to be a knight and we would have uh, we would be courageous and all those good things and so uh, Chaucer was covering this kind of uh, personality. Yeah. What, what do you think? I'm going to move along here and ask uh, Gail Siegel, what makes a good storyteller? Now, you know, we've had mm-hmm. Pat, Pat Conroy on here a number of times, and his family and Pat, uh, bless his soul, passed away, but he would say, tell me a story. So you've been explaining that these were oral and then they were written down. What makes a good story and a good storyteller, Gail? What a good question. Oh. Uh, I would say that having, being able to characterize your, being able to give a sense of who the main characters are that makes them seem individual, not just stereotypes, but that give them a real sense of character. So when Chaucer, for example, gives us the partner, he also describes him in ways that give us a sense. He says his voice was as high as a goat Mm -hmm. and that he was a very good singer and that he um, he seemed like maybe he was a gelding or a mare. So he's telling us something about kind of a lack of virility in mm-hmm. this character. Mm-hmm. And that makes us interested in what, that makes us interested in hearing more about this character. And it turns out that this is a character who is not all there. He's not a fully substantial person. He's such a sinner. Something is missing. And what's missing is his soul. What's missing is his soul. His soul. And so yes. what Chaucer gets at, he tells a funny story, he tells a really simple story, but it has a deep meaning. So we're talking about the soul, about the spirit. Yes. And it's a it's a story that goes deep. A, a story goes deep, right? Yes. You know, we, we can all tell superficial stories. Yes. But that doesn't really get our interest, does it? No. Yeah. So he has... He decides to give us a story of pilgrims on a pilgrimage. So on the one hand, you have a bunch of ordinary people and ordinary sinners, but there's a spiritual element to each character because if they're sinners, there has to be a way for them to be redeemed. 
And so they're heading towards, hopefully, redemption, except the partner who's looking to make money along the way. On the way, yes. (laughs) And maybe the wife of Beth who might be looking for her number six husband. Number six husband. (laughs) Well, that certainly applies to present-day society. And, Gail, as we move along here today, I want to talk with you because I really want to pick your brain here uh, here in your office on the Wake Forest campus about what else do you... Now, you teach um, this, and then you also teach how to apply it to the public schools, you know, to help in the classrooms, to mm-hmm. teach medieval uh, reading, medieval writing, and so on. Yes. What I do is I'm a managing editor of a journal that's called The Once and Future Classroom. And it's an online free journal, um, but it's scholarly. And so we have all kinds of teachers who write about how to make an innovative lesson on something medieval. And we have both high school teachers and we have university teachers who write about some, a very successful lesson that they've taught. And some of these are absolutely marvelous people who use map technology, the latest technology in maps, to go back and map something from a medieval story, like mapping the pilgrimage route to Canterbury. We'll have people who take their students on pilgrimages of various sorts, sometimes metaphorical pilgrimages, not religious pilgrimages, but one that's in imitation of a religious pilgrimage. Well, you really got me thinking about this pilgrimage thing, and Normally, I guess back there, I'm generalizing, it was more of a religious pilgrimage, you know. But, of course, around here, we have a lot of baseball fans. Uh, Some people like to go over to Cherokee to gamble, so you could actually put that in the context. Or, you know, actually, we have a lot of racing fans around here. So they could all get together and then tell stories and go on a journey, right? Exactly. And it's it's, uh, the journey is the journey of life, no matter whether it's, a pilgrimage for a religious reason or a pilgrimage for to the hall of the race car hall of fame it's still the journey of life and it's what's important is what happens where you end up in the end you may take a lot of detours on the way on your pilgrimage um and you may go straight the straight and narrow route but whichever way you go as long as you end up having atoned for your sins and been absolved you're going to heaven. This would be a very medieval view. Correct. Yes. Yes. And I and I love though this idea of the character of the knights and and this aspect of uh, uh, introspection, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I uh, certainly get that feeling here while I'm on campus here today. And that we're coming to you, folks out there from Emory and Henry College campus. But I'm on the Wake Forest campus today. And as we move along, our excellent producers watching the clock here, Gail, talk a little bit about what else you teach. Now, there's something about Erotic poetry? Did I yes, read that? Yes, I wrote a book. I, I, I write on medieval um, courtly poetry, and I also teach um, I teach medieval poetry, and I teach the legend of King Arthur, which is a very fun course to teach. And it's also, in a way, very relevant, because who isn't interested in knights? Who isn't interested in chivalry and courtly love? And all these things, we tend to have fantasies in our mind about what these things are. And in our popular culture, it's very common. But to read the real thing, to know what the real thing was like, is very, very interesting. Those are one of the other courses you have here that you're teaching on campus. And you're teaching and sharing ideas with these wonderful students. Yes. 
Uh, Gail, any closing comments on poets and writers today? Anything that you want to share that you're doing or I've left out? If I've talked too much, that they'll cut that out. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I would just say it's a joy to teach good students uh, who are open-minded and who think the thing that the, the, the class is going to be really hard and they end up having the greatest time because it's really not that hard. It just It's remote, but it's really not. It's really very contemporary. Is this the b most important thing about being a professor? What do you get from being a professor? I know you get a huge salary. <laughs> <laughs> so wh why do you keep teaching, Gail? I do enjoy seeing students' eyes light up. I enjoy them actually getting grasping some new idea uh, learning about history or culture or appreciating the beauty of a sonnet um, for the first time. I really enjoy watching students learn. And when I have them as freshmen, they're one kind of person. And when I have them again as seniors, they're so much smarter. They have learned so much. And it's a joy to see that. Kel Siegel, thank you for being on Poets and Writers today. And this is Henry McCarthy saying, do not wait up for me. Do not be afraid to stay or still away. I'm going out to write a poem and watch the children play. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.